0: Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. I remember when I started emergency medicine a decade and a half ago, it seemed that any kid who came into the ED in cardiac arrest died. I know, depressing thought. But over the past 15 years, survival to discharge from pediatric cardiac arrest has markedly improved, at least for in-hospital arrests. Now, this is probably mostly due to an emphasis on high-quality CPR and advances in post-resuscitation care, but the more comfortable, knowledgeable, and prepared we are for the always scary, critically ill pediatric patient, the more likely we will be able to resuscitate them successfully, which is always a huge save. So, with this mission in mind, we're going to cover in this podcast all the highlights from the newest AHA guidelines on advanced pediatric life support, and in particular, Ready for this? We're going to discuss some key differences in the physiology of kids versus adults that'll help us in our resuscitations, why chest compression-only CPR isn't the best idea in kids, how we can use feedback to do better CPR, how much fluid we should use in septic shock, the use of atropine and antidysrhythmics in kids, the role of ECMO in pediatric cardiac arrest, how to improve post-cardiac arrest care, and a lot more. So it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Alan DeCon, a Pediatric Intestivist at Stollery in Edmonton and the Director of the Pediatric ICU Transport Team, as well as the Writing Group Chair for the American Heart Association and Heart and Stroke Canada PALS Guidelines. And Dr. Anthony Crocco, Division Head and the Medical Director of the Pediatric Emergency Program at McMaster Children's Hospital. A three-year-old boy presents to your ED triage dyspneic, febrile, lethargic, and mottled. The triage nurse is so worried about this boy that he picks him up in his arms and carries him straight to the resuscitation room. The child had a runny nose, cough, and fever for the past four days, but became lethargic that day, which prompted parents to bring him in. He's not immunized and has no travel history. That's about all you can get from the first minute or two. While the nurses are placing him on a cardiac monitor and placing an IV, he stops breathing. You arrive in the resuscitation room at this moment. Feel for a pulse and there is none. Your own pulse is now 150. So Dr. Krakow, let's just start off. Uh, we'll back up a little bit and just ask ourselves, what are the key physiologic and anatomical differences that we need to understand for pediatric cardiac arrests as opposed to adult cardiac arrests that most of us general emergency docs are more used to managing.
1: So Anton, there are a number of anatomic and physiologic differences that may change how you resuscitate a child compared to how you might resuscitate an adult. And I would start off with some of the airway differences. First of all, that airway is going to be a lot more anterior than you're expecting, especially in the young infants. And I'm always surprised when I go to intubate an infant, just how that airway can hide more anteriorly than you would expect. A second thing is to try and make sure that the child is anatomically appropriate in their airway. And you can do that by looking to see, does the child have a large occiput? And a lot of these infants will have relatively large occiputs, which if you don't account for by putting a roll under the shoulders, you may sort of pinch off your airway or make it a little bit more challenging for yourself. And we know that doing an airway in an infant is going to be challenging enough. There's no reason to make this harder than it needs to be. There's a few things that we additionally talk about, and one of those is that the tongue occupies a relatively larger space in the mouth, and so you have to be ready that there's going to be some airway obstruction just with the tongue alone.
0: So that larger occiput in infants means positioning is key to get that ear to sternal notch lined up, and the way to do that is to place a roll or blankets under the infant's shoulders. We'll have an image in the show notes of that. Next, Children's tongues are huge, so if they have decreased LOA, they're at much higher risk of obstructing. And finally, in terms of anatomic differences, when you're looking at the cords, remember that they're usually a lot more anterior than you might expect. Now, what about physiologic differences? Well, kids have a predisposition to respiratory failure as opposed to cardiac failure, and when they're in shock, it's more likely that they'll be in cold shock rather than warm shock like we see in adults. And because of their increased sympathetic tone, they can hold their blood pressure until they suddenly crump. And this is probably the most important physiologic difference. So let's hear what Dr. Duquesne has to say about how important it is that we recognize shock before the blood pressure dumps.
2: I guess the first thing, Anton, is that if we're talking about, you know, the kid that's actually going into cardiac arrest, you know, most of those kids, they've got, uh, as opposed to the adult that's going to collapse, where the adult collapses from fibrillatory arrest, primary cardiac arrest, you know, the kids have got a long period, usually of either of hypoxia or ischemia or both that leads to the cardiopulmonary arrest. I think the ultimate thing we're striving for, you know, ends up being early recognition and prevention of the cardiac arrest. You know, when it comes to the physiology, vital signs, progression of this, the sad reality is is I think that we under-recognize the deteriorating child often for long periods of time, whether it's on the basis of just not getting that the significance of the tachycardia and the tachypnea we're just so caught up in our own anxiety but ultimately at the end of the day kids do appear to fall off that precipice very quickly relative to adults so i think ultimately you know when it comes to this kid coming into your emergency department you know 99 percent of the way you're going to win in this case is going to be it's all about preparation so not waiting until the kid crumps but early recognition early preparation
1: one of the things that I've struggled, Alan, is with this exact issue. And, you know, I think we've all had cases where we look back and say, geez, we could have identified this kid's sepsis a whole lot earlier. What have we missed? And there's no great sensitive screening tool for pediatric sepsis. And there's a number of screening instruments that can be used, but none of them are 100% sensitive. Uh, And so we struggle with that, no matter where you work, if you feel that this is something you could improve on, the answer is we can all improve on this. And I think one of the biggest things that I struggle with is what we actually call tachycardia and what we don't, and what we do with tachycardia. And historically, PALS and various other sources, the APLS book, have given us ranges for different ages for what a normal heart rate and respiratory rate is. And a recent study that came out, in fact, one of my favorite studies that came out in the last decade was by Fleming, that actually did a systematic review of normal heart rate, normal respirate in kids, and set up a nice table for what that looks like, but also superimposed the normal variation from PALS on top of that and showed that the PALS normal ranges for heart rates and respirates in kids is actually not as accurate as we would like. And so I warn listeners that the first step is going to be identification of tachycardia and make sure that you're using a resource that's at evidence-based. The second thing that I worry about is what we do with that tachycardia. And I fall into this mistake all the time where I see a kid who's tachycardic and say, ah, it's probably because he's scared. It's probably because he doesn't like me, which is often the case. You know, it's maybe because he's febrile and I'll come up with 101 different excuses for his tachycardia instead of saying, hey, maybe this kid's tachycardic and febrile, and maybe this is his earliest way of warning me that he's septic. And so I really warn listeners to, A, know what tachycardia is, use an evidence-based approach to that, and B, don't ignore children with tachycardia and just you know chalk it up to something benign. Think about sepsis.
2: You know, I think one of the things, though, Anthony, is that, and I totally agree with you when it comes to having a sense as to what the significance of the different vital signs ends up being, but I think a lot of the time, a lot of us get, it's almost like practitioner paralysis. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, heart rate of 160. Is that normal or abnormal in the three-year-old, right? So we're picking up our PALS cards or we're looking to a reference. I hate to say it, but I think by the time we get through medical school and we've gone through residency, and most of us do just have good common sense. Don't underestimate that visceral gut reaction of, I don't know why it is. I can't quantify it, but this ends up being a sick kid, at least as a first step. I think the second point, this is, I'm going to dig myself into a hole a little bit here because, you know, I've been involved in PALS course design for a long time. But when you're talking about sensitivity and specificity, you know, the things that we teach when it comes to recognizing the kid in extremis, like the kid that's septic, when we're talking about heart rates and cap refill and pulse strength, any of these things individually are incredibly non-specific, like you pointed out. But the sensitivity is great. What ends up happening as you start layering more and more of these findings on top of each other, that's where it becomes much more specific. But still, at the end of the day, there's going to be a significant number of kids that honestly, you're going to come back, you know, an hour later and you say, well, he's a lot better. And I don't think it was actually the 20 per kilo of fluid that I gave that made the difference. So I guess what I'm getting at is there does end up being a chance of overreacting or over treatment. And I think that for the vast majority of the kids that we're working with, that's okay in our system. Because I think the risk ends up being that if we don't end up having that tendency to overdiagnose a little bit when it comes to the kid in extremis, the risk does end up being that we do end up missing the diagnosis and the kid where it really does end up mattering so i guess bottom line is don't underestimate your own visceral reaction your gut feeling and number two is yeah when you think back to everything you ended up learning in pals it's not just about a heart rate it's not just about a cap refill the more of these things that you can superimpose on top of each other the more of them that are there in that one patient the more likely the kid is dirt sick But then at the end of the day, yeah, there's a risk that you will have over-treated some of these kids, but I think better that than under-treating them and missing a critical opportunity.
0: Absolutely. I just want to reiterate one key thing that Dr. Crocco, you were talking about the importance of understanding exactly what tachycardia is and paying attention to that and not trying to kind of give excuses of why this kid might be tachycardic because we've all been in that situation where a kid is tachycardic. And we know that they have increased sympathetic tone and they will be tachycardic and tachycardic and tachycardic and tachycardic. And then suddenly they lose their pressure. And I think it's just important for our listeners to remember that kids will hold their blood pressure at a normal blood pressure until it's way too late.
1: Yeah, I agree. If you're seeing a kid who is now hypotensive, we've missed an opportunity. Now, that may not be our fault. It may be that they're presenting late, but we shouldn't wait for hypotension to define severe sepsis in children. We should be trying to pick that up sooner with either vital signs or gestalt feeling. And sometimes it boils down to me sort of in my mind saying, you know what, I got a bad feeling about this kid. I don't like this story. I just there's this kid looking at me the wrong way. I'm going to do a workup on this kid. And sometimes that's all I'll go on just because there's something that's triggering.
2: Can I add in one thing there, Anthony, and I think that's in the same way that you're emphasizing, don't wait until the blood pressure drops before we jump on it. I'd end up saying that one of the things that I think all of us do at one time or another is once we reestablish a blood pressure that's greater than the fifth percentile we end up backing off we say okay we're okay now even though the kid has a cap refill of 10 seconds and he's got no peripheral pulses and he really doesn't look good i think we need to remember that blood pressure threshold that we react to that's the fifth percentile and yes five percent of kids that's going to be their normal blood pressure But even in the 5% of kids that it is their normal blood pressure, that's not going to be what their blood pressure is when Dr. Krakow is standing with a 12-gauge IV over them waiting to stick it into them. So I think, yes, don't wait to react until you've got hypotension. But then when you reestablish a pressure over the 5th percentile, recognize that those kids, a lot of them are still in shock and they still need
0: ongoing resuscitation. Great, great point. Great nuance there. So we've got this kid in our resuscitation room, he's gone into a V-fib arrest, you reach for the defibrillator, and for the life of you, you just can't remember the initial dose for defibrillation in kids because you haven't defibrillated a kid ever, and you took the PALS course, let's say, five years ago, and you're in your community hospital. This has happened to me before. Can you just remind our listeners what the initial defib dose is in kids?
1: So whether you've got monophasic or biphasic energy that you're going to be delivering, it's good to start with either two to four joules per kilo. And I always think of starting with two joules per kilo and then going from there.
2: The one thing that is that I think we don't tend to do that much in pediatrics, but the guidelines do say it's okay, is that, you know, escalating the doses beyond four joules per kilo with multiple doses is maybe a reasonable thing to do. I will say that that does come from really literally case reports, but there are some times that, you know, the kid won't respond to two joules per kilo or four, but may respond at six. Now, honestly, if you reach a point where you've got a kid that you've had to defibrillate, you know, four or five times, and if you're in an in-hospital setting, you should probably be looking at an alternate way of getting that kid back. And we'll talk about that a little bit later.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. There's a, a lot of talk now about shock resistant VfiB in adults Everything from Esmolol to dual shock therapy, amiodarone, lidocaine. So there's lots of controversy and and literature that's coming out on that. We'll talk about what your suggestions are for kids in a minute. Let's just talk about the ABCs or more aptly the CABs. So for years, we've been touting CAB, circulation airway breathing, instead of the old ABCs when it comes to the initial management of cardiac arrest in adults. So in adult, who have a cardiac arrest on the street, chest compression-only CPR without ventilations is considered acceptable and maybe even better because it allows fast initiation of chest compressions and less interruptions of chest compressions. What about kids? Let's start with first responders out-of-hospital arrests. What should they be doing in terms of whether they should be doing chest compression-only CPR? Or should they be doing ventilations as well? And let's divide it into single responder versus two responders. And then we'll talk about the in-hospital arrest and how that might be different.
1: I think it's good for folks to remember the difference between a pediatric arrest and an adult arrest. Usually with an adult arrest, it's a cardiac event. Whereas usually with children, it's going to be a respiratory and asphyxia or hypoxia mediated event. And so, you know, if I think back to the last few arrests that I've seen, whether it was the kid that drowned, whether it was the kid who had bronchiolitis and arrested, whether it was a child who had a seizure and obstructed his airway and arrested, whether it was a child that had a foreign body, all of those arrests were mediated by hypoxia. And so, If we're resuscitating a child, I think it's important that we have a a way of doing things, but the way that we do things in adults may differ a little bit from the way that we do things in kids.
2: Great. So, Anthony, I guess maybe what we need to be stressing on that is that, especially with a single rescuer out of hospital, most important thing does end up being to get the hands on the chest as quickly as possible. Even though we've got limited data, the CAB versus ABC approach does make sense for kids and adults start chest compressions. When it comes to that whole chest compression-only CPR versus rescue breathing and chest compressions, as you said, the importance with pediatric arrest is, is that we need to, even though we're going to be starting with compressions, pushing the blood around the body, we need to start adding in ventilation by that 16-second mark, by the end of that first cycle of chest compressions. Because it does make a difference, you know, we do have observational data that does end up showing it makes a difference in survival and neurological outcome in kids. So the point ends up being as if we got a single rescuer, a single rescuer out of hospital, most important, press on the chest, and then at the end of the first cycle of 30 chest compressions, we give rescue breathing. Now, if we're adding in a second rescuer, well, by definition, we're talking about hopefully trained rescuers or healthcare providers that happen to be at the side of the patient in the out-of-hospital setting. And we're talking 15 to 2. And yeah, then it's definitely not chest compression only CPR. It does end up being that 15 to 2 cycle it becomes a very arbitrary distinction of where we start what we start with in the in hospital setting because in the in hospital setting we've got multiple rescuers responding simultaneously so i think that's you know, starting compressions as soon as they've determined that you've got a lifeless patient or a pulseless patient makes perfect sense. But at the same time that that person's starting compressions, one of your colleagues is actually putting, you know, 100% on the patient's face and is literally ready to give that rescue breath at the 16-second mark. So it's almost... CAB versus ABC in the in-hospital setting, well, it's arbitrary. We're doing these things almost simultaneously. But ultimately, the theme with both of these ends up being providing ventilation and oxygenation relatively early. Probably it is more important than what we see in an adult cardiac arrest for out-of-hospital. So we do need to make sure that we introduce it in a timely fashion.
0: So talking about chest compressions and how important they are to get that blood circulated, Let's talk more specifically about the components of high-quality CPR. Dr. Crocco. what is good high-quality CPR?
1: So I think there's a lot of lewd metaphors that could be used here when you think about high-quality CPR. But you should make sure that the compressions are of an adequate rate so that you're going fast enough, that you're going deep enough that you're allowing the chest to recoil between compressions so that you're not just pushing down and then staying pushed down. And you want to minimize interruptions on the chest compression because data has shown that coronary artery perfusion increases as CPR continues. And your first several chest compressions don't do a very good job of perfusing the coronary arteries. And so you want to really minimize any interruptions to compressions. And then lastly, you want to avoid excessive ventilation, and it's easy to fall into this trap where we're giving a ventilatory breath with every compression or every other compression, and that's likely to be too many.
0: Okay, so let's go through those individually. So there's five components of high-quality CPR. They're ensuring that the chest compressions are an adequate rate, an adequate depth, that there's full recoil of the chest, that there's minimal interruptions in the chest compressions, and avoiding excessive ventilation so first let's talk about the adequate rate so in adults the studies show that the best rate is 110 beats per minute what about in kids
2: So Anton, you know, when it comes to pediatric data, it's very limited, to be brutally honest. You know, we've got data that shows that faster is better than slower, but we are extrapolating a lot from the adult data, the out-of-hospital cardiac arrest data. So for kids, we are saying 100 to 120, that's the sweet spot. I think we've talked about, you know, everyone understands why slow is bad because it doesn't pump the blood around the body fast enough. I think what a lot of people forget about is that too fast is as bad as well. And that the concern ends up being you're not giving enough time basically for filling of the heart with recoil of the chest. So, you know, 100 to 120 is the range to both for adults
1: and kids that we should be shooting for, for rate.
0: Okay. Well, that's great. That makes it much easier for me to remember. (laughs) All right. So that's the rate. What about the depth?
1: Yeah, so we want to make sure that we're also compressing deep enough and and there's some evidence to suggest that we don't go deep enough when we're doing pediatric chest compressions. So the standard should be that we're compressing one third of the AP diameter of the chest, which is going to work out to be about four centimeters in infants and five centimeters in kids. Even
2: healthcare professionals that are doing CPR in a kid, and I see a lot of this with paramedics bringing kids in with ongoing CPR, because they don't know what the heck is a third, is a half, is a quarter, but how do I know I'm I'm measuring five centimeters, four centimeters, six centimeters – What happens more often than not is that people don't press deep enough. And I think the best word of wisdom we gave to the healthcare community five to ten years ago was this whole push hard. Because usually it doesn't matter if you think you're pushing hard enough, you're probably not with kids. Is there a risk that if we press too deep that outcomes may be worse? Yeah. There's some adult data that suggests that. We've got nothing with peds. And I think I would emphasize that the takeaway message is Just press hard. And if you think you're pressing hard, you're still probably not pressing hard enough.
0: So we need to push hard, harder than we probably think, about one-third the AP diameter. We have to push fast, same as adults, 100 to 120 beats per minute. And in terms of ventilation, it should be at 10 breaths per minute when there's an advanced airway and 15 breaths per minute when you don't have an advanced airway. Okay, so we've talked about how hard to press, the rate, the recoil. There's minimizing interruptions in chest compression. So what are some pearls you can give our listeners in terms of minimizing those chest compression interruptions?
2: One of the things that I think we fall into the trap of it's pretty ingrained in our minds to cycle out chest compressors every two minutes. The checking for pulses and checking for rhythms, it fascinates me that uh, whether I'm in the emergency department and in the ICU, people just, they wanna keep on checking, right? So forget about waiting for two minutes. People are doing chest compressions for 30 seconds, for 45 seconds, for a minute and they're checking, It's we really have to be disciplined to be able to wait those two minutes. Now, there is new technology that's coming out on many of the monitor defibrillators that allows you to actually check rhythm while chest compressions are being provided. I think that's great technology. I think we've still got to be careful that we're not over-responding and stopping chest compressions prematurely because of something we see through CPR on a monitor defibrillator. But I think the takeaway message ends up being is that really wait the two minutes because at least in a kid, you're not going to be making them worse. When the kid actually opens his eyes and is pushing you away or crying as you're doing chest compressions, yeah, that's a pretty good sign that we should be stopping the chest compressions. But otherwise, it's not just
0: that you lose nothing.
2: It's probably the best thing to make sure that you wait for that two minutes.
0: Yeah. Some of the things we do in adults to minimize chest compressions are when we do need to do a pulse check, the chest compressor will count down from 10 and the person who's checking the pulse will already have their hand or even better ultrasound probe on the pulse. So they count down 10, 9, 8, 3, 2, 1. And then so it happens absolutely seamlessly rather than someone saying, okay, let's stop chest compressions. Then they stop chest compressions. It takes a few seconds for someone to get their hand on the pulse. Then they say, hmm, is there a pulse? And then they spend 10 seconds to figure out whether there's a pulse there or not. And of course, there's a lot of interobserver variability in terms of whether they actually do feel a pulse or not. So one of the things you can do is do the countdown and use an ultrasound to actually see whether there's a pulse there or not.
2: One other thing, Anton, I'd throw in that, especially once we've got some kind of an advanced airway, whether it's an LMA or an endotracheal tube, the use of that entitled CO2 to give us that heads up that, okay, I think we've got ROSC. I think we may have spontaneous circulation. I'm approaching that two-minute mark. The end title has jumped from 15 up to 40 while I'm doing chest compressions and while I'm bagging the patient. I'm not saying prematurely stop the chest compressions, but I'm saying I think that's that other piece that, okay, if the end title CO2 has jumped and it's not like you've given other things that are going to confound your end tidal co2 like giving a shot of bicarb that will make it rise prematurely but otherwise if your end tidal co2 is jumping and you're at that minute and a half mark of your two minute cycle be sure that you're you as the code leader is saying to the person that's going to be doing the pulse check okay it looks like we've got Ross probably got a pulse get ready and then as you suggested synchronize that pulse check they know that there's a good chance there's going to be a pulse there
0: Great. Yeah. Talking about monitoring, CO2 and tidal CO2 has been advocated more and more for use in cardiac arrest to decide when someone might have ROSC. What are some of the other things we can do to help monitor chest compressions and monitor our patients in cardiac arrest in general to help know when there's ROSC and to know that we're doing good chest compressions?
2: You know, we've talked a little bit about Entitled CO2 and and striving that when we're pressing on the chest, we're actually trying to to see that CO2 hitting at least 10 to 15 as a marker of good pulmonary blood flow as a part of cardiac output, because that's why we monitor it during CPR. It's telling us how effectively we're pushing blood into the lungs. And we're saying that that's going to be the same as pushing blood out into the body. Don't have great Pediatric data, we've got some adult data, we're still teaching the same thing, push for greater than 10 to 15, whether it's through an LMA or through an endotracheal tube. The CPR metrics, when it comes to the ability to be able to say, okay, am I pushing hard enough, fast enough, recoil, all of these things, these are now, a lot of this stuff is actually getting integrated into the monitor defibrillator technology that we're using at the bedside. Many of the monitors, unfortunately, the lower limit ends up being eight years of age, but increasingly there are companies that are actually rolling out the technology, even down to where we can use it in neonates, where there are pads that are put onto the kid during CPR that are going to be checking for rhythm, but those same pads have accelerometers built into them that actually are measuring how fast and how deep the chest compressions are. So ultimately, what's going to happen is as opposed to saying, geez, am I pressing deep enough? What's going to happen is that monitor is going to sense that you are reaching that threshold depth. And if you're not, it's going to talk back to you, like it or not, and it's going to say, press harder. Or it's going to sense that you're not pressing fast enough, and it's going to say, press faster. This technology is is increasingly moving into our world to help guide to tell us that we're providing high-quality CPR. One last plug I'm going to give is we try and do everything as code leaders. We're trying to run an ALS resuscitation, the BLS resuscitation. One of the things I'm increasingly doing is I'm actually handing over that BLS piece, which is so important, whether it's one of my medical colleagues or nursing colleagues, and they become the BLS coach. And basically, while I'm focusing on where I am in the algorithm, what's the next drug, they're actually monitoring chest compression rate, depth, recoil, ventilation rate. And they're actually providing feedback, not just to me, but they're telling the compressors and the ventilators whether or not they're doing their job the right way. So, That's a cheap alternative for an expensive monitor defibrillator. I think we need to recognize that we may have limitations as a code leader of us being able to do it all by ourselves. A monitor defibrillator is an alternative, but you don't have to have the monitor defibrillator. All you have to do is also hand over some of that monitoring to one of your um, code team members.
0: I love that idea of having a dedicated team member just monitoring for good CPR correct ventilations and giving feedback, giving live feedback. I mean, that's something that people can do tomorrow, even if they don't have the fancy technology. Let's move on to airway. We talked about some of the anatomical differences that we have to consider when approaching the pediatric airway in cardiac arrest and in general. Let's talk a little bit about RSI in general and some of the drugs. I want to start off with atropine because that's a bit controversial. Now, we've all seen kids get intubated and suddenly bratty out, presumably from a vagal response. So it would make sense to pretreat with atropine before you intubate. And the new guidelines are kind of really wishy-washy on whether or not we should be using atropine for pretreatment in RSI in kids. Can you guys just go over for our listeners what the guidelines say about atropine and what your kind of practical clinical bottom line is when it comes to using atropine for pretreatment of RSI in kids?
2: You know, it's it's fascinating because Unfortunately, most of the data that historically we've had as to whether or not we should be giving atropine to kids as part of an intubation medication combination was coming out of the operating room, and it was elective pediatric intubations. Needless to say, with all due respect, anesthesiologists don't intubate the sickest kids in our community. It's done by emergency medicine physicians and intensivists, and I think we've got to be careful when it comes to how that data is extrapolated. So what happens is is that even though we've had guidelines from whether they're PALS guidelines or ASAP guidelines that have talked about whether we should or shouldn't be using atropine, this last guidelines release, we ended up finally having some pediatric data which was from not operating room. It was actually from intubations of critically ill infants and kids in, in Europe, and it was observational data. It wasn't an RCT, but it was looking at the use of atropine versus no atropine. So the takeaway message out of this is that because it's observational data, and here's Anthony saying, yeah, you're being wishy-washy again. The observational data ended up suggesting that there is actually benefit to us using atropine for at least the intubation of critically ill kids. But because it's not strong, high-level evidence, we didn't feel that we could really stir things up and derail the ASAP guidelines or other guidelines, which had very much pushed away from routine atropine for intubation. So bottom line is the PALS guidelines have ended up saying, yeah, if you know you're going to be giving drugs that are going to be associated with bradycardia, and you know what, that includes drugs like fentanyl, succinylcholine, then it's reasonable to give some atropine up front. Otherwise, it may be reasonable to just have it drawn up and ready to give if you run into bradycardia. I will say that a major guidelines organization that's also going to be issuing septic shock guidelines for kids may end up interpreting that same data in a very different way. And unfortunately, we're going to be left with some confusion in the resuscitation community as to, okay, guys, you got two different guidelines organizations potentially saying two different things. But for now, PALS guidelines are saying, If you think the patient's going to be having a high risk of bradycardia, yes, it's okay to give it, but you don't have to routinely give it. At least, I think, be aware that smaller kids are at greater risk of bradycardia. Have it drawn up and ready to give. If you think there's a high risk nature in some kids based on the drugs you're going to give, by all means, give it up front. But we're not saying, PALS isn't saying, yeah, routinely give it every time you're doing an RSI. And this is different than atropine for bradycardia? Just so we're clear on this, this is actually for RSI that all of this controversy surrounds.
0: So suffice to say that atropine should not be used routinely for RSI, that you may want to consider it in kids that are less than a year old because those younger kids are more likely to bratty out, that if they're receiving things like succinylcholine, that's more likely to bratty them out. So you might want to consider using atropine pretreatment in those kids who are going to be getting succinylcholine, and, of course, in those kids that are severely bradycardic. In our kid who's in cardiac arrest, who's completely flat, you may be using no medications at
1: all. I know for me in an arrest situation where you've got a child who has no vital signs and is unresponsive, some of the medications that we traditionally think about with an RSI are not needed. I don't need to sedate a child who is obtunded with a GCS of three. And some of the medications that we use as part of an RSI, you know, things like fentanyl, and midazolam, can bottom out your blood pressure. And so I don't want to throw too much in the mix if I actually am not benefiting from the pain control or anesthesia from those medications. And so I'm always wary to add medications when I don't need to. And so I'm happy with these new guidelines that atropine is not for routine use because anytime I add another medication that has to be administered, that's an order I have to think of. I have to calculate the dose. I have to wait for the nurse to draw the medication and hope that it's all given in the right order. All of that taking up time, effort and concentration.
0: Absolutely. Okay. So for the kid without any vital signs, really atropine has no role. It shouldn't be routine, but Certainly for RSI, where we're talking less than a year old, if they're severely bradycardic or you're planning on giving them succinylcholine, it's reasonable to give atropine. Okay, so that's all we're going to talk about, atropine. Let's talk about intubation itself. What are some of the common pitfalls that you'll see in general in pediatric airway management?
1: I'd say from our end, and this I think has been echoed on the adult side, is that sometimes people aren't thinking about the potential for failed intubation. And often you'll hear people say, well, you know, if there's a problem with my airway intervention, I will go on to this instead of saying when there is a problem. Because if we do this often enough, we are going to run into problems with airway management. And so I always see airway management as like playing cards. The more cards you have in your hand, the better you are. So the more skills that you have or more tricks that you have up your sleeve, That may be using an LMA, that may be using direct laryngoscopy, a glide scope, any number of other techniques. And with the final option being a surgical airway, you need to know what that's going to look like when each step fails, what's your next step, and have that plan in your head ahead of time.
0: Absolutely. Preparation is totally key. You had mentioned over ventilation. I just want to emphasize the ventilations because I see this being done way too fast quite often. Dr. Crockle, can you just review for us what ventilations we should be shooting for
1: and what the problem is with overventilating? I'm always worried that when I intubate, it's so easy for me to overventilate. And if I overventilate and I blow off truckloads of CO2, I'm now starting to mess up some of the acid-base balance in the body. And these are kids who are already pretty brittle physiologically. I don't know if you've seen this, you know, Alan, either in the eMERGE when you come down or the ICU with your patients. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting because I think the whole
2: issue of what inadvertent hyperventilation does to your hemodynamics, it came originally out of some adult out of hospital arrest data but now we realize it's not just with arrested patients like an arrested patients inadvertent hyperventilation basically you get stacking of breaths and you got an increase in intrathoracic pressure so that there's no blood coming to the heart that when you're doing cpr you can then press out to the body so we've known that for a while with cardiac arrest but even in low cardiac output states the heart's still pumping but we're in shock. If you actually look and see what happens to your cardiac output as you inadvertently start bagging faster tidal volumes, your pulse pressure, your cardiac output gets worse. And it's the same basic mechanism. It's that you're reducing the ability of blood to passively return to the heart because you're creating a higher interthoracic pressure. So bottom line is, yeah, I think we've talked about the importance of not hyperventilating during CPR, but I think we need to remember that in shock, actually, it's not just blowing down the CO2 and the effect that that ends up having on, on cerebral perfusion because of, you know, vasoconstriction inside the brain. This is also just about blood flow and about cardiac output in shock states and cerebral blood flow just because of the effect on filling of the heart in shock states.
0: Absolutely. So the bottom line there is we're talking ventilations once every six seconds. That's 10 breaths per minute. So really you have to count those six seconds, you know, getting back to the monitoring thing, you know, having someone monitor not only the chest compressions, but also the ventilations for having the correct rate of ventilations, I think is really important. So let's go back to the case here. Let's say you've shocked the septic kid who's in a V-fib arrest and he doesn't convert. Now the old pals guidelines they recommend amiodarone over lidocaine for shock resistant VFib or pulses VTAC, and in adults we talked about the ALPS trial on our Journal Jam podcast, which compared amio versus lido. But I understand that there's some observational data in kids that's shed some new light on this amio versus lido controversy. Doctor DeCon, can you tell us a bit about how you might use amio or lidocaine in shock resistant VFib or v VTAC in kids? Well, you've talked about the ALP study. We've got pediatric, it's not prospective data.
2: It's large observational, or at least large for pediatrics, observational data that shows that at least for short-term outcomes, lidocaine is superior than amiodarone, but it's observational data and it's short-term outcomes, which is why... At the end of the day, we ended up saying we were very uncomfortable with still this, oh, yes, amiodarone has to be the drug of choice. We felt that based upon this observational data, whole lidocaine back in as an option. Honestly, I think the ALPS study, as well as some other data, still makes you wonder whether or not any of these drugs really make a difference for most patients. But in the short term, what we're saying is, yes, for pediatrics, lidocaine and amiodarone, at least for subsets of patients are probably equally effective and lidocaine is back in as an option.
0: Okay. So in terms of shock resistant VF which is in kids, occasionally we'll see this in adults but in kids it's even more rare. I mean, just a VF arrest in kids is rare to begin with. These are extremely rare situations but certainly giving amio or lidocaine is an option for these kids in addition to going up on your defib dose. Before we do a mid-podcast review, I just want to let you know that registration is open for North York General's 30th Annual Emergency Medicine Update Conference, May 3rd to 5th in Toronto. This is my personal favorite large-scale EM conference because it combines great hands-on workshops on airway, POCUS, ENT, urology, optho, and radiology, with some great inspirational nugget-filled talks from world-class speakers like Anthony Crocco, who you've been listening to on this podcast, Amal Matu, Mike Betzner, David Carr, Walter Himmel, Ruben Strayer, Aaron Seyal, Eric Latofsky, Sarah Gray, Chris Hicks, and my med ed buddy, who's spearheading the podcasting course in April, is coming up for the first time, Rob Rogers. All of these speakers have been on EM cases, so I can tell you from knowing them really well that they are all fantastic educators. So I hope to see you in May at EMU. So let's go on to the review. Let's talk first about some of the differences between kids and adults when it comes to PALS. First, the anatomical differences in the airway. The ones that we really need to be aware of are that the airways tend to be more anterior, so you need to expect that. They have larger occiputs, so you need to elevate the torso to get that inline ear to sternal notch, and they're at higher risk of obstruction uh, because of their larger tongues. From a physiologic perspective, the main point to remember is that kids are great at maintaining a normal BP when they're in shock, and instead their heart rate and respiratory rate go up to compensate. So, early recognition is key. And if you overcall shock, that's okay. Be conservative when it comes to identifying shock. If you think it might be shock, but you aren't sure, start resuscitating on spec. If you do recognize shock too late when the BP is in the boots and you bolus them up, remember that just because you've normalized the BP with your resuscitation doesn't mean you're done. If the patient's heart rate and respiratory rate are still up, they're probably still in shock and ongoing resuscitation is required. Now, pediatric arrests are usually respiratory, so chest compression-only CPR in the field is not advisable in kids as it is in adults. You need to be starting breaths by the end of the first cycle of chest compressions at the 16-second mark. And for in-hospital arrests, addressing airway, breathing, circulation that is ensuring a patent airway, oxygenation and chest compressions should all start simultaneously. Now what about the initial dose for defibrillation in kids which i always forget? It's 2 to 4 joules per kilogram and it's not unreasonable to go higher if necessary. And that brings up what to do for shock resistant vfib and pulseless vtac. Well for these you do have the choice of amio or lidocaine remember that there's some observational data that shows for ROSC, lidocaine might be better than amio, but neither has ever been shown to increase the rate of survival to hospital discharge in kids. Now, we all know how important CPR is. What are the five components of good CPR? Well, first there's adequate rate, which is the same as adults, 100 to 120, and adequate depth, which is one-third the AP diameter, and that's four centimeters in infants and five centimeters in older kids. And remember, we tend not to push hard enough. So if you don't have feedback monitoring, err on the side of pushing harder. And the last three components of good CPR are allowing for full recoil, minimal interruptions, and avoiding excessive ventilation. So some tips on minimizing interruptions are the following. Before a pause in chest compressions, ensure three things. One, have a hand or pocus on the pulse. Two, count down from 10 before the pause. And three, pre-charge the defibrillator before the pause. Now, when it comes to the five key components of good CPR, the last one is avoiding excessive ventilation. And remember that you need to count to six between each ventilation in the intubated patient. Overventilation decreases cardiac output and cerebral blood flow and worsens acidemia. So slow down your ventilations. We all tend to go too fast. Now, if you can assign a person to give feedback to the ventilator and the chest compressor, that's great. Or if you have an electronic feedback system, that's even better. One adjunct to assessing the quality of CPR is end-tidal CO2. So if the end title CO2 is 10 to 15, that's a good indication that CPR is adequate. And if it jumps to 40 or more, that's consistent with ROSC. Now, when it comes to pre-treatment drugs for RSI in critically ill children, atropine is controversial. The dose is 0.02 milligrams per kilogram, three to five minutes prior to giving your sedative and paralytic drugs for RSI but it should not be given routinely. You can consider it in bradycardic kids, those under one year of age who tend to bratty out more, and for those receiving drugs that can cause bradycardia like succinylcholine, for example. Next, we're going to talk about fluids in septic shock. Let's talk a little bit about fluids in septic shock. This is something that we've got some new data on as well. Early and rapid administration of fluids to adult patients in septic shock is generally accepted as one of the most important key components of sepsis management. And the pediatric guidelines have emphasized early fluid boluses in pediatric septic shock as it was thought to reduce mortality. We discussed this in detail in our episode on pediatric sepsis. It's 20 milliliters per kilogram IV normal saline bolus repeated twice to a total of 60 milliliters per kilogram. Dr. DeCon, what's the latest on early fluid administration in kids suspected of septic shock?
2: So this is really topical because that data that you talked about suggesting that aggressive fluid resuscitation was the way to go, you know, that's data that's built up over the last 25 years, and along with that data rolling out and a change in the practice that we have, there truly has been concurrent with that change in practice, significant improvements and outcomes with pediatric septic shock, with fluid administration. The interesting thing though is is that you know about 3 years ago there was a study that came out it came out of sub-saharan africa and you can anthony is probably rolling his eyes right now he's thinking oh great so we're extrapolating from sub-saharan africa to north america but you know what it was a study the biggest pediatric resuscitation study that's actually been performed it was uh, you know over 3000 kids uh, in profound shock states associated with fever and in that setting what it suggested is that bolus therapy of anything whether it is saline or albumin was actually associated with greater mortality risk so gave a lot of us in the resuscitation community pause for thought to think geez, why is it that, you know, aggressive fluid resuscitation would actually be associated with worse outcomes? And I think the challenge ends up being that, first of all, every patient that's febrile and has shock is not necessarily going to be fluid responsive. Or at least they may, but very rapidly, their shock state can change and they can change to a non-fluid responsive state, and basically where they're going to be more likely to be an inotrope or vasopressor responsive state. And I think what happened is that African data suggested to us that if you're not watching really, really closely, it's very easy to actually go beyond the limit of fluid or the appropriate dose of fluid for that individual patient. So, Where does that leave us here in the developed world when it comes to the data? Well, you know what? There's data that actually shows in the pediatric critical care world that although aggressive fluid resuscitation isn't associated with greater mortality, if we actually adjust for everything else with the exception of fluid volume... What ends up happening is that the amount of fluid given during resuscitation is actually directly associated with not mortality in Canadian or U.S. ICUs, but actually with longer ICU stays, longer ventilator days. So it's not mortality. But there are other aspects of morbidity that I think we're aware of now that potentially for some kids, if we go beyond that fluid resuscitation threshold that we're going to put them at risk of. Now, Anton, I'll say the one thing that we don't want to do is we've made so many gains in the last 30 years with outcomes in North America with giving aggressive fluid. I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, go back to what we're doing in the 80s and just give little mini aliquots of fluid and under-resuscitate kids. But I think what we need to do is we need to make sure that as we're pushing those boluses, we're listening to the chest for crepitations in terms of liver span, frequent reassessments need to be done because I think there are going to be patients that even in our setting, if we're overly aggressive and if we don't pick up on those changes, we're going to be putting them at risk of morbidity.
1: I'm happy to echo what you've said there, Alan. And if I think back to some of the original studies that I'm thinking of Carcillo's original study, small observational uh, study that gave us the message 25 years ago that we really should be aiming for 60 cc's per kilo in that first hour of septic uh, resuscitation. And some of those kids received more than 100 cc's per kilo in that first hour. I've held on to that paradigm that we really have to make sure we fill that tank and aggressively fill that tank. I think one of the things that I really like about Maitland's study in sub-Saharan Africa is that it was done very, very well. And it's now opened a question for us about where's the top end of that? Because if we overfill the tank, that water is not going to be peed out. That water is going somewhere and the likelihood is that that water is going to go into the lungs and the interstitial space. You know, I think for me, the message is not to avoid fluid in these kids, but to start off giving 20, 40, maybe 60 cc's, but early on, consider your inotropic agents to, you know, think about whether you need to improve cardiac efficiency, whether you need to clamp down peripheral vasoconstriction. And it's to the point now where we've had a trial here in Hamilton, a pilot study, and I think it's going to be moved to a multi-center trial through PERC, our National Pediatric Emergency Research of Canada group, uh, looking at early aggressive fluid versus early fluid with early inotropic agents. And I think the way that we're going to go with this and where we'll probably end up landing is fill the tank, but don't overfill the tank. And early on, think about things like epinephrine.
0: Yeah, there's definitely a trend in adult practice with septic shock to start vasopressors early. I know that generally in Australia, for example, their practice is after one, maybe two liters of fluid, they're already starting vasopressors. So who knows, maybe in 10 years, we'll have some data showing that we should just be giving 20 cc's per kilogram and immediately starting vasopressors. But we'll see. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing that data being validated. Just one
2: last editorial comment on that. I think just to reiterate it, I think we just need to make sure that we don't swing back too fast too aggressively the other direction because you know having trained and started practice in the 80s at a time where it was very limited fluid resuscitation and early aggressive introduction of vasopressors in kids and adults, you know, that's where that whole leave a fed, leave them dead descriptor came from. And and there's a sweet spot in there. So we need to make sure this is kind of like the Goldilocks and the three bears, right? Too much is, is bad. Too little is bad. I still think we need to find what that sweet spot in the middle is for us.
0: Absolutely. Okay. So, I mean, that brings to the front the point that we should really be monitoring our kids very carefully. And every time we give fluid, we should be checking what their response is to the fluid. Now, if you are going to pull out vasopressors, what is your vasopressor of choice in septic shock in children or in shock NYD in children?
1: I guess I'll start from an eMERGE perspective. I think it's a good idea for people to start off with epinephrine. And, you know, there are more options, obviously, but I've heard epinephrine described as God's inotrope and God's vasopressor. And so that's generally where we would start in the emergency department.
0: All right. So again, we talked about this in our septic shock episode that kids are usually in cold shock when they're in septic shock. And so epinephrine makes sense for cold shock, whereas in adults, they're usually warm shock and norepinephrine is the drug of choice for septic shock in adults. Dr. Dukan, any comments about initial vasopressor of choice in kids with shock, not only in septic shock, but also just in shock NYD? I will also end up saying,
2: though, there's a learning curve that a lot of us are going to have
0: to go through because
2: we've got built into us so much the whole role of dopamine and dobutamine and a lot of these drugs that that honestly come with a whole set of baggage as well that we probably need to be reteaching ourselves that that whole keep it simple, stupid, epinephrine makes the most sense. So. And those rare times, especially in older kids, where we do get true vasodilatory shock, yeah, norepinephrine does make sense. But most of the kids, as you pointed out, they're going to be cold shock. It's going to be epinephrine that's the best onotrope to start with.
1: I think that's actually echoed in the literature. There was a paper by Ventura, 2015, that was a randomized double-blind prospective study looking at septic shock in kids, epinephrine versus dopamine. And, and they actually found that there was survival benefit with epinephrine.
0: Great. All right. Let's move on to the second case. Case number two, a four-year-old fully immunized girl presents to your ED with 24 hours of increasing irritability, lethargy, fever, and rapid breathing. On exam, she appears diaphoretic and in severe respiratory distress with a prolonged cap refill. She has extreme tachycardia and dyspnea, but a normal blood pressure with an oxygen saturation of 89% on room air. Her temp is 39. You call for 20 cc's per kilogram, normal saline bolus, and ceftriaxone for presumed sepsis. As you're sorting out the imaging, you notice her respiratory rate increasing and her oxygen saturation dropping, your resident who's doing a head-to-toe exam noticed an enormous liver. You stop the fluids, pull out the ultrasound, place the probe on her lungs, and you find lines. So Dr. Crocco, what are you thinking in terms of the most likely diagnosis now in this patient, and how will you manage the situation?
1: So, you know, Anton, this is a clear case of things going not the way that I planned. And this happens often in the emergency department setting where you make a diagnosis, you start a therapeutic algorithm, and things aren't going the way that you planned. Which for me, as I'm walking down that path, I always think either I've made the right diagnosis and I'm doing the right thing, just not enough of it. Or there's something else going on that I haven't quite identified and I'm doing the wrong thing. And I think likely in this case, that's what we're dealing with and that there may be an element of sepsis here, but likely there's an element of cardiac failure, uh, likely mediated by myocarditis or some sort of internal cardiac issue.
0: Yeah, myocarditis is one of those things that scares the bejesus out of me because it's a very difficult diagnosis to make, but it's one of those things that we always have to remember, especially in kids, because it's apparently one of the more common causes of cardiac arrest in children.
1: Yeah, 100%. These kids actually scare me a lot too. So if you're a bit nervous about myocarditis in kids, welcome to the group. That's pretty much everybody.
0: All right. So we've got this patient who now seems like they're in congestive heart failure and they're septic. Let's continue with the case. So despite your best efforts, this child ends up deteriorating, gets intubated, and now is hypotensive with frothing at the tube. You put in a call to your pediatric intensivist, you suction the tube, you call for epinephrine, but your patient still ends up going into a PEA arrest. You go through your usual PALS algorithm, and your astute resident asks you, Do you think there is any role for ECMO in this patient? So, Dr. DeCon, what is the role for ECMO in pediatric cardiac arrest?
2: So, probably the first thing I do is I ask the resident to leave the room because he's coming up with way too many ideas. (laughs) But in all seriousness, I think for patients that are in cardiac arrest, the issue of when we bail out to Advanced technology, like putting them on ECMO, putting them on cardiopulmonary bypass during arrest as a way of reestablishing a circulation, is something that it becomes pretty artificial if you don't have that kind of technology in your hospital, right? So I think a lot of community-emerged physicians, this is unfortunately, it comes back to recognizing the patient at risk early calling for help what can you do when it comes to stabilizing the patient so that you're not going to be dealing with the arrested patient because honestly once these kids arrest a lot of them it is very difficult to get back now if i started a code i don't have a pulse i don't have a perfusing rhythm within five minutes and that's happening in our icu on our floors or in our pediatric emergency department, basically, it automatically prompts the question in our minds, is this patient a patient that is to be putting on ECMO during resuscitation? Now, Why isn't every patient appropriate? Well, you know, because it ends up being that, you know, the patient with a prolonged out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, at least the kids, we're going to say that technology isn't going to prevent the long pre-hospital arrest and the damage that goes along with that. But the rest in the emergency department with technology rapidly accessible have a plan in place, a pre-discussed plan, where you and your colleagues know that by not at 30 minutes, not at one hour into the resuscitation, but at a relatively early point in time, you're activating your local system. It does take time to bring in the people and the technology. So I guess that's the first thing is thinking of it. Do I have the technology and a program that is going to be able to help me in this kind of a situation and think of it early?
0: Okay. So first point is, if you do have ACMO, call early. So basically any pediatric arrest that comes in, you should probably be calling right off the bat, you know, saying we might need ECMO for this patient. And then like you say, five minutes in, make the call for sure if you've got the capability. So what would the specific indications be for ECMO? Just to give our listeners a general idea. I think one of the most difficult things
2: ends up being to identify whether or not this patient is or is not the right kind of candidate to put on ECMO during arrest. So as in this kind of an example, Anton, you know, the previously well kid with myocarditis that has, a, let's say, a primary dysrhythmic crevasse or a witnessed arrest in your emergency department, if you can move quickly, this would be the right patient. And I'll tell you that with this kind of technology as a CPR tool, what we're seeing is just in terms of survival outcomes where generally you've got kids with prolonged resuscitations in emergency departments where when you're past the 40 minute mark, you're dealing with very, very small likelihood of functional survival with ECMO. You're talking with that same duration of CPR, 50% of kids leaving the hospital alive. So I think if you choose the right patients and you have the discussion early and you've got the access to the technology and the program, Think of it early, have the discussion with your ICU colleague, and then you can mobilize your program quickly.
1: Yeah, so I work in a center that has pediatric ICU or a tertiary care pediatric emergency department, but we don't have pediatric ECMO. And so, you know, if I think about where pediatric specific ECMO was available, my guess is that there's probably three, four, maybe five centers in Canada where this can be done. And so I think for the vast majority of emergency physicians, even those of us working at centers that are non-cardiac, emerge uh, and pediatric hospitals, we have to be a little bit careful because this is very much a quaternary resource that's available at only a couple of different centers. And so the lesson for me with all of this is if I have a kid that has myocarditis, is early identification that this is not your standard septic child, which in of itself is hard to identify, but myocarditis even more so. And early consultation with our local PICU for early consideration of this child needing to go to a PICU that has ECMO capacity because the management of this is going to be supportive care. And the potential is that these children will deteriorate to a point where they their cardiac output becomes insufficient. And so I don't want that kid sitting in my emergency department deteriorating. I'm not sure that a non-cardiac ICU is the best place. Potentially you want this kid moved to somewhere that has a cardiac ICU. And so I think early identification and early consultation is the answer here. If I wait until this child arrests before I start asking those questions, there's no chance that they're going to get to an ECMO circuit before they're dead.
2: Can I make one comment on that, Anthony? And I think, for instance, here in Alberta, one of the approaches that we've ended up taking, we've said we can't have an ECMO program in every center. But increasingly, what we've actually done is we've said that there are what we call cannulation programs. So let me give you an example of what happens with pediatric ECMO in Western Canada. If in the pediatric ICU or in pediatric emergency department in Winnipeg, end up having a patient that ends up collapsing right in front of them or is having a progressive deterioration they will do what they can in terms of if they've got cardiac surgeons they will cannulate they basically use the adult teams and people with some pediatric expertise to say okay for the right patients we can get the patient on ECMO and then what ends up happening is that Edmonton ends up flying out and we transport the patients on ECMO from the cannulation center That's a lot of pre-planning, right? But I think we are moving into a world now where, especially in our adult world, and Anton can speak to this better than I, you're dealing increasingly in North America with adult emergency departments that are going to be cannulating adults with refractory cardiac arrest, putting them on ECMO. It does really mean that what we need to be doing as pediatric healthcare providers and as emergency medicine and critical care providers is thinking about, okay, we can't build an ECMO program in every place, but is the center that we work at, do we have the ability to actually put them on ECMO temporarily until an ECMO transport program can move those patients? Because this is going to be one of those areas where 10 years ago, it was two centers, now it's uh, you know five or six pediatric centers. I think it's going to take an increasing role in pediatric resuscitation
0: in North America. I want to move on now to post arrest care, and usually the first thing that people think about with post arrest care is the controversial temperature management. So in adults, in the latest Canadian guidelines on targeted temperature management. They suggest that TTM is strongly recommended for comatose survivors with ventricular fibrillation or ventricular tachycardia and a known cardiac cause. And the recommendation is weaker for those with asystole or PEA or a non-cardiac cause. And as far as what temperature to aim for, they recommend cooling to 32 to 34 degrees Celsius despite that big New England Journal of Medicine article in 2014 that showed no difference in outcomes for 36 degrees versus 33 degrees. So, Dr. DeCon, what do we need to know about targeted temperature management in pediatric arrests?
2: So, I think there's a lot in common between the limited pediatric data and the adult data. I think there's a common thread that comes through from these studies, and it really suggests that When it comes to hypothermia or normothermia, so whether it's 36 to 37 compared to 32 to 34, we really don't have enough evidence to suggest that one is the other. Now, the pediatric data that we've got is out of hospital cardiac arrest data, and that was good data. The takeaway message ends up being at least don't let your patient become febrile. Fever ends up being the worst thing for an injured
0: brain. So that's the bottom line for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. What about in-hospital cardiac arrest, the arrest that you witness in the emergency department? Well, since we recorded this episode, there was a big study out of New England Journal of Medicine, January 2017, entitled Therapeutic Hypothermia After In-Hospital Cardiac Arrest in Children, and it was from 37 different pediatric hospitals in the United States, Now, it compared cooling kids within six hours of in-hospital cardiac arrest to 33 degrees versus simply treating their fever and targeting 37 degrees. After about 330 patients that were randomized, they actually stopped the study early because they found no difference in one-year survival, and they didn't find any difference in functional outcome either. So from this study of in-hospital patients and other studies of -of out-of-hospital patients, I don't think we can say that therapeutic hypothermia is the standard of practice for children after cardiac arrest. In fact, the PALS guidelines are in line with this study in saying that we need to treat fever. That's the most important thing, but we don't necessarily have to cool the patient any more than that. Most of the kids that we see that are in the emergency department are going to be septic. Most of them will have a fever. So I'm just thinking practically here, let's say uh, you've got a septic kid who's arrested. You do all your usual resuscitation. How are you going to get that fever down to, you know, normothermia, if not hypothermia? What steps are you going to take before the patient goes up to your unit to start the process?
1: So Anton, a lot of these kids that initially come in febrile with their septic shock can become normal thermic or even hypothermic during the resuscitation. And if you think about what we're doing, we're often exposing these children and doing CPR and giving them 20, 40, 60 plus cc's of normal saline or isotonic fluid that's not warmed, it's cool. And so a lot of these kids during the resuscitation will actually drop their temperature and can become hypothermic. And so part of our resuscitation with this, especially after we've successfully resuscitated, is to look at all. vital signs, including temperature. And if the child has become hypothermic, we may need to rewarm a little bit, but not overshoot the mark. And if the child remains hyperthermic, we may want to consider cooling at that point.
0: Okay, got it. Now that's temperature control. What about blood pressure management? What should our target blood pressure be in, say, a septic kid who's coated or has had a respiratory arrest?
2: Well, I'll tell you the data we've got is limited, but it's interesting that when you actually look at post-resuscitation blood pressures in kids, post-cardiac arrest blood pressures, there's kind of a cut line where if you've got blood pressures less than 70 plus the age times two, so that fifth percentile, right, hypotension comes are worse if we see hypotension in those kids. So definitely avoid hypotension. There's Honestly, the part of the problem ends up being is that autoregulation within the brain, especially, is not normal in a lot of kids after cardiac arrest. And I think it leads us to still not knowing for sure. Are there subsets of kids shooting for higher blood pressures? And the short answer is we don't know. And that needs to be studied more. But definitely avoid hypotension. The second part of that ends up being, well, if you are going to treat the hypotension... What should you do? Is it fluids? Is it inotropes? Is it a combination of both? And I think it really comes back to the same approach talked about earlier with the septic child, some fluids are going to be necessary, but frequently reassess your patient and there is going to be a sweet spot where you probably do need to transition from fluids to some inotropic support and usually epinephrine. You know that the myocardial dysfunction after arrest kind of peaks out at about 12 to 18 hours after you get the circulation back and then it steadily improves. So... I guess where I'm going with this is that usually in the emergency department, interestingly, hypotension doesn't tend to be at its worst at that time, usually because you've got a lot of bolus doses of epi that are still being absorbed and circulating around the body. This ends up being much more a problem that we face in the ICU. Or I guess if you're in a community emergency department and you're waiting a few hours for a transport team to come and pick up the kid, Yes, your patient may be at risk of hypotension post-ROSC, but it tends to be a more delayed phenomena as opposed to in the first few minutes after you get them back.
0: Good to know. Great. So that's temperature management and blood pressure management. What about sedation and analgesia? You know, in adults, most of us will start with fentanyl for analgesia and then we'll add midazolam for sedation if we need it uh, with the goal of having the patient comfortable but not completely comatose because some ICU studies have shown that with big doses of benzos and the patient being totally comatose, there is an increased risk of delirium after that. What do you recommend for immediate post-arrest sedation and analgesia in kids?
1: Well, this is going to be a it depends kind of answer. And I think it depends a lot on what's going on hemodynamically with the child and where you are physiologically with the child and also with their level of consciousness. You know, I always try and imagine what it would feel like to be intubated. And I can only imagine that it is. A, uncomfortable, and B, scary. And those two things combined, experiencing pain and anxiety, we know have physiologic ramifications, but so does using lots of medications. And so even though my go-to might be an opioid and a benzodiazepine, which are relatively easy to titrate, I'm always cautious that the medications that I'm using are going to have cardiovascular effects as well. And both of these are likely to dump blood pressure. And so on one hand, I'm trying to make sure the child's adequately sedated and adequately analgesed. On the other hand, I'm balancing that risk of over sedating over and dealing with a child who's now hypoperfusing their brain
2: the only thing i'd add to what Anthony's saying is is that that translates into better to use small aliquots of any of those drugs and just if you have to redose them every few minutes to find that sweet spot where you have the patient that's settled that is maintaining his pressures that's probably the way to go Conversely, if you've got the patient that's a GCS of three or a GCS of four after resuscitation, we don't need to start those patients on opioids or benzodiazepines. You know, there are some of these kids on cardiac arrests. Uh, unfortunately, you know, you can leave that to the folks in ICU. Initially, they're so obtunded that really there's a greater risk that you're just going to tip the hemodynamic table as opposed to actually benefiting your patient by starting sedation or en- enzyolysis early.
0: So let's say we've intubated a child and we want to transfer them out. We're certainly going to want to have that patient sedated and analgesed adequately during transport. Like you were saying, Dr. DeCon, that if the patient's completely comatose, GCS of three, then this really isn't an issue. But for those kids who have a higher GCS post-intubation, what do you recommend in terms of sedation and analgesia for those kids that we're going to transport?
2: This really boils down to there is no better or worse choice, whether it's opioids, benzodiazepines, drugs such as ketamine. All of these drugs can be used, but they all also have a chance of hemodynamically destabilizing the patient.
0: So that covers temperature management, blood pressure management, sedation and analgesia, and post-arrest care. I just want to go all the way back to the beginning and ask... How can we prevent these arrests in the first place? In other words, how can we anticipate in the ED that a kid might be going south, might be progressing towards a cardiac arrest? What are some of the early warning signs we can use? I understand there's some scores. What are some tips you can give our listeners to try and pick up really sick kids before they arrest?
1: You know, I think with a lot of pediatric illnesses and specifically sepsis, Identification is probably the hardest part of all of this. And whatever tool you're using, it's good to remember that no tool is perfect. And there's a decent sepsis screening tool that's available through the Canadian Association of Pediatric Health Centers. At the end of the day, I think if people are using their pediatric assessment triangle that's taught in the PALS course, that's going to help you with a lot of different diagnostic possibilities with kids, whether it's sepsis or something else that's critical. But going through the ABCs of that assessment triangle, the appearance, how do they look, or do they look well or unwell, alert, unresponsive, responsive. What is their breathing? Are they breathing quickly? Are they hypoxic? Are they working harder to breathe? And then what their circulation is both peripherally and centrally. The pediatric assessment triangle is a really useful tool to start your assessment of whether this child is sick or not sick, remembering that there's a number of things that can cause a child to become sick, including sepsis.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, we see hundreds and hundreds of kids who are pretty much fine, who might have a viral illness that we know they're going to get better from, Even those that, you know, have a bacterial pneumonia, a lot of them aren't sick at all. You know, these are just the rare, rare patients that we need to be on the lookout for. And we just have to keep on reminding ourselves to have that same general approach to every kid we see in the emergency department to really go through those, that pediatric assessment triangle. You know, if you have any doubt, you should be looking at cap refill and skin turgor and really undressing the patient really well to look for any signs of respiratory distress. And don't forget just those basic principles. All right, let's do our big review of the second part of the podcast before we wrap it up. First, an update in fluids and septic shock. Now, traditionally, it's been suggested that children suffering from septic shock receive 20 milliliters per kilogram IV or IO bolus normal saline repeated twice to a total of 60 mils per kilogram. And that's what we talked about on our episode on pediatric sepsis and septic shock. Now, there's been two studies that have challenged the notion of early aggressive fluid therapy in pediatric septic shock. One, a large study out of Africa that showed an increased mortality with fluid boluses of normal saline or albumin, and another small study out of Canada showing longer ICU stays and longer times on a ventilator. Now, together, these studies suggest that we should carefully reassess the child for signs of fluid overload after each fluid bolus and avoid hypervolemia. The other thing to consider, perhaps, is starting epinephrine sooner than has been traditionally advocated. Now, all this being said, we also don't want to under-resuscitate patients either. You need to fill the tank early in these kids, but need to frequently reassess the child's fluid status so that we don't overload them. Now, what about initial vasoactive drug of choice for pediatric septic shock? Well, based on a Brazilian RCT in 2015 out of critical care medicine, the first-line vasoactive medication of choice in pediatric septic shock is epinephrine, not dopamine. And it's important to realize that in this study, the epinephrine was given via a peripheral line or IO line. You don't have to wait for central line placement to give ionotropes. Now, what about the timing of starting epinephrine? Well, we still need big RCTs to make it standard of care, but it looks like there's a trend towards starting epinephrine relatively early on in our resuscitation of kids in septic shock. So then we talked about the post-arrest phase, post-arrest care. What are the big points we have to remember in post-arrest care? Well, first, avoid hypotension at all costs. Try and get that blood pressure to 70 plus age times two, and keep on monitoring that heart rate because they could still be in shock despite a normal blood pressure. For sedation and analgesia, your choices are fentanyl, midazolam, or ketamine. Just be really careful to keep the hemodynamics stable with these meds. Now, when it comes to temperature management post-arrest, the big take-home point is to avoid fever. Cooling below 37 degrees is not mandatory. And what about ECMO? Well, even if you're working in a community hospital, Consideration should be given for ECMO and cardiopulmonary bypass in some pediatric cardiac arrest patients. Now, there aren't any validated published indications for pediatric ECMO, and the decision to start ECMO post-arrest should be done on a case-by-case basis in consultation with a pediatric intensivist. But the take-home point is make the call early. At five minutes into the resuscitation of a cardiac arrest patient... That's the appropriate time to call your pediatric intensivist to consider ECMO. While there's very few ECMO centers in Canada, there are more and more cannulation programs where the process is started at the base hospital and the patient is transferred to an ECMO center. All right. To wrap things up, I'd like to ask you both what you think the future holds for pediatric advanced life support and cardiac arrest care. Dr. Crocco, what do you see in the future of PELS?
1: You know what, Anton, I'm going to sound like every research paper that's ever been published in the history of humanity and say that more research is needed. I think one of the things that we struggle with is not having a lot of good quality evidence. A lot of the evidence that we're using is either generalized from adult populations or populations that may not represent the population that we're seeing in our emergency department or their observational or retrospective studies. As our margins decrease in terms of how much we can improve care with these kids, as our survival gets better and better, we have to do larger and larger studies to show a difference. And the only way really to do that is to work together with other centers doing multi-center trials. And so organizations like HERC in Canada, PCARN in the States that work together with multiple centers to create a larger database or larger uh, studies is really going to be the way that we're going to answer some of these questions. No single center is going to be able to answer this question on their own
0: collaboration. Awesome. And Dr. Dukan?
2: I think one of the most exciting things about pediatric resuscitation science in the last 10 years is you can hear dogma crumbling, right? Adrenaline. There's now increasing out-of-hospital cardiac arrest studies in in adults, RCTs that are actually suggesting that for adult out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, that adrenaline is of no value. Now, it's not enough. It's not at the point where we're ready to change algorithms yet. But imagine a world where an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest for an adult, adrenaline is not on your algorithm imagine that imagine for adult in hospital arrest a greater cumulative dose of adrenaline when you adjust for everything else is actually associated with worse outcomes so so some of these things you know what's the is there a role for adrenaline or where is the role for adrenaline in cardiac arrest we've already talked about amiodarone and lidocaine you know what cut to the chase maybe it doesn't make a difference in meaningful outcomes in patients in the vast majority of patients we're seeing that Intubation and laryngeal mask airways in cardiac arrest for adults and maybe even for children actually are not associated with improved outcomes. I think this builds on what, what Anthony was saying is I think the research that we're doing now is really challenging some of the tenets of resuscitation care that we had. So in 10 years time, basically, if you don't respond to basic CPR, you're automatically going on to ECMO. You know, it's, it's interesting. I, I think that being able to predict what our algorithms and what we're going to be doing in five to 10 years time is very difficult. And I think that's really, to me, that's exciting because doing it the same way as we did it 30 years ago for all patients just doesn't make sense. So I just say, stay tuned. I think we've got really exciting times coming over the next five to 10 years.
0: All right, we'll have to get you guys back on the podcast in five years.